Welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. The real story of the taming of the American frontier from New England to California is often hidden these days, while much is being taught and written about the plight of America's indigenous peoples and the shame of slavery. Students of history are much more likely to know about the Trail of Tears or the Battle of Wounded Knee and the Massacre of Innocent Indians than they are to know the details of the Battle of Saratoga or the hundreds of stories of American frontiersmen and their families trying to survive in a very hostile wilderness, a wilderness often made more hostile by British and French armies intent upon taking the land for their own and using Indians to do the dirty work, which they were only too glad to do for guns, weapons, captives to torture and scalp, and whiskey. White British sympathizers, called loyalists, did it for a chance at looting their colonial rebel neighbors, and the desire to come out on what they felt was the winning side during the bloody American Revolution, which lasted eight years in the more populated areas and longer in the wilderness. Indians did it because war was all they knew. War made men out of boys, and that was their culture. And until the white man came, war with each other was constant. They, both the Indians and the British and French, were to find their match in the frontiersmen who came to build farms and towns in the wilderness, many of them Scotch-Irish, others mostly English at first, until the floodgates opened to Europeans. These men and their families were independent thinkers, frontiersmen, and natural-born fighters. None of them wanted a king, and none wanted to lose their scalps. All they wanted was land to farm on and to raise families. Sadly, Often the only things left standing in America's memory of these frontier settlers are the highway markers and stone memorials that have been placed at or near the sites of past battles and settlements to honor the brave who came and settled the wild regions and fought to survive and raise their families. Add to that names of towns and creeks and places that still bear those pioneer names scattered all over North America. These men and women and their children were builders, fighters, and survivors. They didn't rely on doctors, policemen, or government to order their lives. They were simple, God-fearing people who were born with the bark on, able to handle themselves in the worst of circumstances. They are the people of today's story. Every person who enjoys the freedom of America should know the kind of people it took to build this very independent country and give it its spirit. TV and movies don't begin to do them justice. You'll meet some of them in this story the men, women, and children who came to Kentucky, which one Indian peacemaker called the Dark and Bloody Land. It was a forest paradise, until war came to it, and for as many years as the British and French wanted it, and that was many, it became dark and bloody. When we think of the American Revolution, we don't often think of Kentucky, but in truth, they were hit hard as the English used Indians as weapons of war in an effort to wipe all the colonists off the face of the frontier. There's a highway marker on State Route 57, also called Bryan Station Road, located on the right side as you're traveling southwest towards Lexington, Kentucky, that reads, Bryan Station, camping place in 1775-76 of the brothers Morgan, James, William, and Joseph Bryan. It continues, In 1779 it was fortified as a station, which in August of 1782 repelled a siege by Indians and Canadians under Captain William Caldwell and Simon Gurdy. For your information, Bryan Station is about five miles east and north of Lexington, Kentucky. To get you situated, if you travel due north from Lexington, Kentucky on Route 75 for about an hour and a half, you'll hit Cincinnati, Ohio.
"'Regarding that road sign, "'note the date of the siege, "'August of 1782. "'That's nearly a year after the British surrender at Yorktown. "'The British may have surrendered at Yorktown, "'but the war, which had begun April 19, 1775, "'didn't end with the surrender of the British at Yorktown. "'It continued until September 3, 1783, "'making it a war of eight years, four months, two weeks, and a day.' The war after Yorktown shifted from the East Coast to the frontier. On the frontier, war was a way of life before and after the Revolution. And when the British or their loyalists weren't leading the Indians, the French or French Canadians were. And when it wasn't them, it was just Indians doing what they had done to each other for centuries. Raiding, torturing, killing, and scalping. This was their way of life. And those tribes who weren't good at war were swallowed up by those who were. Just ask the spirit of Squanto or J.F. Cooper's last Mohican, Chingachgook. By the way, for you history buffs, there was no last Mohican. The Mohicans were forced out of the Hudson River Valley into western Massachusetts around Stockbridge, then later relocated to the Northwest Territory to today's Wisconsin, where they merged with the Muncie Band. They are today called the Stockbridge-Muncie Band of Mohican Indians. How are they doing, you ask? You can stop by the North Star Mohican Casino Resort in Bowler, Wisconsin, and ask. As far as Northwest Kentucky goes, it was described a few times as a no-man's land for Indians. There was no one dominating tribe. But it was hunted by tribes from all around, making it a dangerous place to live. Many of the smaller tribes like the Siska, the Maumee, the Saponi, and Monitan were conquered by stronger tribes like the Chickasaw and Shawnee the Shawnee being a splinter tribe of the powerful East Coast Powhatan. Others had split off from the mighty Iroquois to the north and east, or the Sioux to the north and west. To the south were Cherokees. As mentioned, Indians had been at war long before the first white settlers. I will grant you the fact that in a number of instances, innocent Indians and Indian camps were attacked and destroyed. Off the top of my head, once in New England by the Puritans, once on the Outer Banks by angry colonists, at places like Wounded Knee by U.S. Cavalry, and in Pennsylvania, where a God-fearing sect of Moravian Mission Indians were massacred by an unauthorized Pennsylvania militia. President Theodore Roosevelt called that one the worst stain ever committed on the American frontier. But these atrocities pale in comparison to those carried out by American Indians over a period of 300 years. In Kentucky, I can find no instances of white atrocities committed upon unarmed or undeserving Indians. On the contrary, the indigenous tribes that used Kentucky as their hunting grounds, as well as their British allies and loyalists, relentlessly carried out attacks on innocent settlers for decades. In 1896, the Lexington, Kentucky chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution raised the money to build a stone monument at the site of a spring which ran near the original fort at Bryan's Station, a monument which has since been restored again, so that all may appreciate the sacrifices of the brave men and women who occupied that fort in 1782, but especially the women of Bryan's Fort, who risked their lives to bring water from a nearby spring to the fort, despite doing so under the watchful eyes of Indians. And we'll be sharing that story in detail as we go forward. Without a doubt, it's a hero's story. Theirs was one of many brave acts that occurred during that siege in 1782, the story of which follows as part of the larger text, which is the history of Bryan's Station, which is the history of early Kentucky and the American frontier. Their courage, their little settlement, and their names are almost totally forgotten to history. 
I think their story deserves to be told. And please note, the walls of the octagonal stone monument there, which was dedicated back in 1896, are four feet high, with the names of the Bryan Station pioneers carved into the stone. For many years it eroded with the weather and the weeds and neglect, until recently it was cleared again. New stones were added, names were recarved, and it was brought back to its original luster. But it still stands alone, and for the most part, unseen. It is located on a private farm off the Bryan Station Road, and sadly isn't open to the public. Today, thanks to the people in Kentucky who care, it's looking pretty good. But it's a shame you can't get in to see it. We'll return with the story of Bryan Station, right after these sponsor messages. And now back to the story of Bryan Station, Part 1. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special, limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. It was in the year 1773 that a pioneer family named McAfee first came to what is today called the Bluegrass region of Kentucky. One of the McAfees killed an elk by the banks of a river there, leaving a huge set of antlers on the bank of that river for others to see, and the river became known as the Elkhorn. It still carries that name today. In 1774 and 1775, five frontiersmen, John Floyd, James Douglas, and Hancock Taylor, three surveyors of Fincastle County, Virginia, of which Kentucky was then a part, and William Bryan, a hunter from that section of North Carolina now known as Rowan County, and John Ellis, a Virginia veteran of the French and Indian Wars, arrived in that area. They were seeking land in which to raise families and build their futures. They filed claims, surveys were made, and temporary improvements were made, but they were forced to abandon camp for years as war had broken out between the outraged Ohio Indians and the colony of Virginia, and it had barely ended when the great struggle for American independence began. Of the five men, all were wounded fighting Indians, and three met their deaths fighting Indians. Hendrick Taylor was killed in Madison County, 1774. William Bryan killed in Fayette County in 1780, and John Floyd in Jefferson County in 1783. After Virginia passed a free land law in 1779, a huge tide of emigrants flooded into the area within present-day Fayette County. John Ellis and John Floyd both served in the Continental Army after their visit to the North Elkhorn region, to which they later returned. Permanent settlements were made in Fayette County for the first time, and Bryan Station was one of these settlements. In 1779, four Bryan brothers from North Carolina, William, Morgan, James, and Joseph, of whom the eldest brother William was the leader, 
arrived, and with them came William Grant, both of whom had married Daniel Boone's sisters. William Bryant had married Mary. Grant had married Elizabeth. All five men were elderly but stalwart woodsmen, and each was blessed with a great family of children, almost all of whom in 1779 were nearly full-grown. They had all set out from Boonesboro in the Yadkin River Valley of North Carolina, complete with dogs, pack-horses, flintlocks, and cows. They were joined at the Cumberland River by two land-hunters, Cave Johnson and William Tomlinson, who joined the party for mutual protection. It was this group that helped to build Bryan's Station when they reached their destination. For much of the way they had followed a buffalo trail, or trace, for there were buffalo in great numbers back in those days, and one settlement known as Blue Licks was named after the natural salt licks to which the buffalo journeyed for replenishment. Salt was, and is, as most of you know, a basic element for survival of animals and men. Bryan's Station on the North Elkhorn Creek was about five miles north of the small stockaded settlement of Lexington in present-day Kentucky. Bryan's Station, when they finished building the original fort, consisted of 14 cabins made of logs with the bark on, covered by roofs of the roughest clapboards, and provided with chimneys made of sticks and clay. The cabins were arranged as a square, with the aid of an outer wall of great pickets made of tree trunks sawed in half and buried in place standing. Everything was put together by wooden pegs, as iron and nails were not then available. The station, or fort, was placed on elevated ground, and the surrounding trees were cleared so as not to give attackers a hiding place. At the foot of the hill and facing the south side of the station was a creek, partially hidden, which provided the fort with cold water, its only disadvantage being that it was surrounded by underbrush and a thicket of cane. A footpath zigzagged downward to the spring through the freshly cut stumps of trees and past some saplings of dogwood and pawpaw and through wild rye, pea vine, and clover. The families had only a few pots and ordinary implements to use. The rest they had to make, from slab tables to chairs and buffalo tallow dips needed for the making of soap and candles. From hand mills they made deerskin breeches and moccasins. Beds in the primitive cabins were made by forcing forked sticks into the floor, running poles through the forks into the log walls, and then stretching buffalo hides tightly over the framework. Bedding consisted of homespun sheets and blankets and beautifully pieced quilts and kivers, or coverlets. Hunting was done for necessity, for the settlers lived on wild game, and when the hunters returned without enough, the camp went hungry. You needed to make every shot count, as lead was scarce. From the time they were boys, these hunters learned how to bark a squirrel, meaning to deliver the shot so close to the squirrel's head that the impact of the bullet striking the tree next to its head would stun him and drop him from the tree. This saved the meat from being destroyed by the bullet. The Indians took a brief break in killing and raiding in the fall of 1779, thanks mainly, it was said, to the success of George Rogers Clark in his Vincennes campaign. So game could be had that year without the constant risk of life, and more settlers came. Among these were Stephen Frank, Nicholas Tomlinson, Thomas Bell, David Jones, James Hogan, Huttery Lee, and Daniel Wilcoxon. Others under the leadership of Colonel John Grant and Captain William Ellis of Virginia went five miles further toward the spot where Paris, Kentucky now stands and established Grant's Station. A trace was cleared between the two forts so they could support each other. Once the two settlements were finished, it wasn't unusual to receive visits from the already well-known Daniel Boone, Simon Kenton, and others from the same county. Most of you know of Daniel Boone. Simon Kenton was a close friend of his who fought in the French-Indian War, the Revolution, 
the Northwest Indian War in 1793 and 4, and the War of 1812, where he served as a brigadier general. In Kenton's colorful past, he had been captured by the Shawnee and saved Boone's life, not to mention countless others. During the years of Bryan's station, Kenton was in his early 20s. It was during one of those visits that news was brought that the Bryans, who were convinced they were rightful owners of the station land, discovered that the settlement was within the limits of a survey made in July of 1774 for William Preston, then surveyor for Fincastle County, Virginia, who had already traded it to Joseph Rogers. Rogers was to return and settle on that land in years after. The misfortune of the Bryans, and a particularly bad winter, made the months of late 1779 and early 1780 miserable for many of the settlers at Bryan Station. The newcomers had not time to plant corn, there was no bread, and meat became scarce, for the larger game had scattered as the numbers of hunters increased. Their little paradise became a starving, cold hell. The spring of 1780 finally came, and with it came the Indians, as they always did at this time of the year. But it was also in the years of the American Revolution, and England began to make every effort to stop the colonization of North America west of the Alleghenies. We don't often consider that states like Kentucky, Ohio, and Tennessee were just as deep into the war as states like Massachusetts, New York, Virginia, and the Carolinas. But they were, in that England, with the help of Indians and Tories, wanted to exterminate all settlers and settlements, which were nearly all anti-Crown. With regard to the Indian presence around Bryan Station and surrounding areas in Kentucky, records show that all the traces were infested with them, and several hunters were killed when the salt gave out at Lexington and Bryan Station, and as salt was indispensable, a party of men made up from both places started up for Bullets Lick near Salt River to get some. They had hardly passed a little cluster of cabins called Lee's Town and reached the bank of the Kentucky River when they were suddenly attacked by Indians who killed Stephen Frank and wounded Nicholas Tomlinson, William Bryan, and several others of the party, who quickly recovered, but the expedition had to be abandoned. Frankfort, Kentucky, today's capital of the Commonwealth of Kentucky, and known to have one of the prettiest capital buildings in the country, was named after the previously mentioned Stephen Frank, who was killed by Indians on that mission to get salt. More Indians than ever soon beset the traces and the forts, and neither the pioneers nor their stock could go beyond the clearings without danger. Meat grew scarcer still, and hunting parties, to avoid the savages, had to slip out of the station before daybreak, make a wide circuit, and return at night. When a man went out during those times, his returning was never a sure thing. By the 20th of May, 1780, Bryan Station was desperate for meat. They sent 12 mounted men in search of game to the woods near present-day Georgetown, Kentucky. When they reached the woods, they split into two groups, with the agreement that one party led by William Bryan and another led by James Hogan should range down the Elkhorn River, one party on each side, meeting that night at the mouth of Cane Run. Soon after they parted, Hogan and his men were pursued by Indians, and abandoning the lead horse which had been brought along to carry game, they distanced the Indians and galloped back toward the station to get reinforcements. The soonest they could return was the next morning, with extra men, to link up with William Bryan's party at Cane Run, and they arrived just in time to save most of them, but too late to prevent an attack. The Indians had used the captured pack horse, which was provided with a bell, to lead Bryan's party into an ambush, and had defeated the hunters, mortally wounding William Bryan and severely wounding William Grant, when Hogan's party rode up and finally routed the savages. As we mentioned, William Grant was the husband of another of the Boone sisters, 
Elizabeth. In this last fight, one of the Indians was killed and scalped. That was retribution. Three of the white men were wounded. One of the wounded was David Jones, for whom David's Fork, a tributary of the Elkhorn, was named. David's Fork Baptist Church, built in 1861, still stands in North Lexington as a reminder. David Jones was shot through the middle of the chest, but miraculously survived. The wounded were brought back to Bryan Station, where anxiety gave way to feelings of joy, sympathy, fear, and worry, especially for William Bryan, who returned alive but badly wounded by three bullets. He died before the next dawn, which was May 7, 1780. Soon after, with four wounded men needing attention, those who could stand, men, women, and children, attended their first funeral at Bryan Station. Every man and some of the women carrying a rifle during the proceedings. No church bells tolled on that sad day as the procession walked carefully over the rocks and logs where the buffalo trace crossed in the creek, and the only music was the rippling of the stream when the settlers halted in the woods on the other side of the station. They were all silent as a good man made a simple prayer, and William Bryan was laid to rest under the spreading branches of an oak which stood at his head. After the service, two men stayed to carve his initials deep into the bark of that tree. It is said the trees hold on to deep carvings for hundreds of years. The family history states that no one knows for sure where William Bryan is buried. If that oak tree still survives, it shouldn't be hard to find. Mary Boone, William's widow, left soon after for North Carolina, although she did return years later to live in Daniel Boone's house on Marble Creek. William had left behind Mary and nine children. The Bryans had all talked of leaving the station as soon as they found that they were not owners of the land, and now after the death of their leader, William, they were set to go. But fate wasn't going to allow it just then. On June 22nd, Colonel Henry Byrd of the 8th Regiment of His Majesty's Forces, British Army, leading one of the largest and most formidable bodies of Indians, Tories, and Canadians that ever invaded Kentucky, captured and destroyed Ruddle Station in present-day Harrison County, then took Martin Station also, which was only a few miles from Bryan Station. Between the two forts, Byrd captured 480 men, women, and children, those that his Indians and Tories didn't scalp, loaded them up with plunder from their own cabin homes, and drove them on foot from central Kentucky to Detroit, a distance of 600 miles. On the way, the Indians killed many of the children who could not keep up. They also enjoyed terrifying the captives. Mrs. Hahn and her daughter Catherine were among the captives from Ruddle Station. Catherine, described as a fleet-footed girl of 18, was chased by Indians a half a mile while running the gauntlet and was knocked down by an Indian club. If you don't know what a gauntlet is, you are placed naked at the head of two lines of Indians, men, women, and children, all holding sticks. As you are assigned to run, you would run through the gauntlet, your objective to do it without being killed or maimed or blinded, as you're hit powerfully with sticks and clubs. The mother was soon placed as a slave in Blue Jacket's family. Blue Jacket was a war chief for the Shawnees. History books treat him like a hero, saying all he did was defend his own land. Pure BS. He allied his tribe and his murderous services to whoever promised the best reward. And he was no friend to these or other captives. He was just as quick to split a lagging child's skull and then take the scalp as any of his braves. This forced march of white captives was one of many during the Indian Wars and the Revolution and you could take note that it was 50 years before the celebrated Trail of Tears that fills so many pages of today's revisionist history books. 
Once the captives reached Detroit, those who survived the forced march were divided among their captors, and some were driven 800 miles further on to Mackinac and Montreal. Their story of capture, the separation of their families, the deprivation, the torture, and the abuse of women and children has been very well hidden from the history books. In Montreal, many men prisoners were purposely starved and then told to kill and eat their fellow captors, as the English unleashed the Indians upon them. Some men in England's Parliament stood up against these barbarous actions, but most just put the blame upon the Indians and their Tory captors. They were all fond of saying, well, There's nothing I could do, and you know how those Indians are when they get excited. Besides, I have my orders. Byrd's invasion of Kentucky was just one phase of an extensive planned series of operations, the purpose of which was to sweep clear all colonial resistance from Quebec to the Gulf of Mexico, using Indians, Loyalists, and Canadians to accomplish the heavy work. It was well-financed and brutal. One of Byrd's henchmen was Simon Gurdy, an American colonial of Irish descent from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, who served as liaison between the British and their Indian allies. He was nicknamed the White Savage, due to the fact that he dressed as an Indian and was thoroughly familiar with all their ways. He and his brothers had been taken captive in a Seneca raid that killed his parents, then held for seven years by the Senecas, who indoctrinated him into their tribe, teaching him to war against whites. Colonials learned about his traitorous ways the hard way, and it wasn't long before his name became synonymous with the devil on the frontier. After Ruddle's station, fear settled in among the remaining forts, not only because of the strength of Byrd's forces, but the fact that he was now using artillery. In July of 1780, a group of 60 Indians led by Simon Gurdy attacked Bryan Station, where they seized many horses, ruined much of the growing corn, and were confidently waiting for the arrival of Byrd's army, when Colonel Byrd, either through fear of the falling waters of the licking, from disgust of the utter disrespect of his authority by his wild allies, or from horror at their atrocities, which is doubtful, retreated, but Simon Gurdy's worried return. And later he would. The Indians under Byrd's command consisted of Mingos, Delawares, Shawnees, Hurons, Ottawa's, Teways, and Chippewas. The Bryans, with all their children and families, minus William, decided at last to leave Bryan's station. It was a sad time for those settlers who had tried so hard to make it work. Corn, thanks to the destruction of the fields, was now selling at $120 a bushel, a price none of them could afford, and corn was a necessity if they were to make it through the winter. Their horses were mostly gone, stolen. By late August, they loaded the pack horses, said goodbye to the few who remained at the fort. The conch shell was blown, as history tells us, and the caravan of settlers moved out along the old Buffalo Trace, and the Bryans and their party abandoned the station forever, leaving only their last name and a few brave souls behind. At the start of autumn of 1780, only a few of the cabins at Bryan Station were occupied, and the fort seemed to be about entirely deserted when a change of fortune took place. Clark's expedition against the warring Indians north of them, which happened almost immediately after Byrd's invasion, renewed confidence in many hearts that the Indians could be dealt with, and immigrants once again began to pour into the country. The pouring in of immigrants was the story of America. No matter how bad things got, they were always more ready to take their place, ready to fight and to die if need be, for a chance to homestead and build families. And Kentucky was no exception. Many of those who came to Bryan Station this time were from Virginia. Among them were John Ellis, one of the original explorers mentioned earlier, three Craig brothers named Elijah, John, and Jeremiah. 
Joseph Stucker and relatives, and John Martin, John Suggett, and several Hendersons and Mitchells, arrived. Later in the fall came Mr. Williams of North Carolina, with his young son Ellison, and about that time Robert Johnson, brother of Cave Johnson, arrived, with his infant son Richard M. Johnson, who later became a vice president. These newcomers added not only more fighting men, but more cabins as well as more conveniences. Still, Bryan Station, since the fall of Martin's and Ruddle Stations, was the most exposed of all the stations north of the Kentucky River. Lexington was the best, mainly because its builders had the forethought to include a spring inside the station compound. At Bryan Station, the spring was on the outside. In the spring of 81, the Indians returned to Bryan Station, and even before the blooming of the dogwood, killed a man who was on lookout while Daniel Wilcoxon was plowing corn. Wilcoxon escaped with his life through a lucky mishap. June opened with another casualty when Huttery Lee was killed trying to give his horse grass outside of the walls. His horse was shot and he himself was scalped, dying while yet a youth. It should be mentioned that these Kentucky settlers had never attacked an Indian camp or murdered Indian squaws or children, the types of outrages that many history books today like to talk about. Both men were buried in the rude station graveyard across the creek next to William Bryan. By the spring of 82, on March 23rd, the station was shocked by the news of Captain Estill's defeat. Two survivors of that fatal engagement, also known as the Battle of Little Mountain, was fought near Mount Sterling in what is now Montgomery County, Kentucky, and it was one of the bloodiest engagements of the Kentucky frontier. The battle has long been the subject of controversy as the loss was placed in large part on one of Estill's captains, William Miller, who ordered a retreat that left the rest of Estill's command cut off and vulnerable to a full attack from Wyandotte Indians. Captain Estill was killed, and one of the survivors, David Cook, placed the blame directly upon Miller's head. Monk Estill, the adopted slave of Estill's, won a particular distinction for bravery by carrying a wounded militiaman, James Barry, almost 25 miles back to Estill's station, where in recognition of his heroism, he was freed by Estill's father. Monk was the first slave to be freed in Kentucky. The site of Estill's death is marked by a millstone marker pointing to an old sycamore tree on Hingston Creek. By the summer of 1782, Bryan Station had grown to 40 cabins with clapboard roofs, all of which sloped inwardly, and like all the larger forts in Kentucky, was laid out in the shape of a parallelogram, with a blockhouse at each corner. And every space not occupied by the back or outside wall of a cabin was filled in with pointed log pickets which were 12 feet high. The fort was 200 yards long and 50 yards wide and provided with two big gates that swung on enormous wooden hinges, one of the gates on the southern side near the Buffalo Trace and Creek. That Buffalo Trace would one day become the Bryan Station Turnpike, just five miles north of Lexington, Kentucky. On the outside of the picket wall were several cabins, in one of which lived James Morgan Bryan, his wife and their infant child, and there were other shelters outside that housed tanning vats as well as rude contrivances for making rope and other absolutely necessary articles. The livestock had been increased. More and more had been cleared of trees and fenced. A vegetable garden and a hemp field was flourishing, and a hundred acres of corn extended along one side of the buffalo trace past the fort and down to the forest-covered bank of the creek. Trees still lined the other side of the trace, making it a narrow lane between the trees. Near the creek, which was marshy in spots, was a thick growth of cane so high that a man on horse could hide easily. Looking up from the low, marshy area, one could see the ford on the side of the hill, cleared of trees, 
with its corn and outbuildings extending down the slope toward the creek. Such was Bryan's station on the 15th of August, 1782, just before sunset, when a messenger galloped up bringing news that Captain John Holder, with men from his own station, as well as from McGee's and Strode stations, had been defeated at the Upper Blue Licks by a band of Indians he had been pursuing. The Indians had committed depredations and captured children at Hoy's station in what is today called Madison County. The word was for all settlements to rendezvous at Hoy's station. Lexington station had already been notified and was preparing to go and hunt down the savages, and now Bryan station was hurrying to get ready to do the same. None realized at that time that the attack on Hoy's was a decoy, a diversion, to get Bryan station to empty itself of a good number of its forty riflemen. Since nearby stations would also be depleted, Bryan Station could expect no help from them in the hours to come. As darkness fell on Bryan Station, and bare greased lamps and buffalo tallow dips were lighted, the men met and decided who would go and who would stay. The British had assembled a huge force of Indians, Loyalists, and British regulars for the attack. Early in August, the British Commandant of the Northwest, Lieutenant Governor Henry Hamilton, whose headquarters were at Detroit, ordered Captain William Caldwell to collect militia and Indians and order them to destroy the settlement south of the Ohio. Caldwell was not really British. He was a Tory, a British sympathizer, who surrounded himself with a company of Tory and Canadian rangers, establishing himself as the official head of the force, although its real leader was the infamous Simon Gurdy. A grand conference of Britain and its Indian allies was held at Chillicothe, and while Caldwell promised the Indians captives and scalps, Whiskey and hatchets were handed out liberally. Simon Gurdy, who was half Indian himself in style, language, and manner, would lead them. He promised them that whites would be driven from their hunting lands forever and worked them up into a killing frenzy. The many Canadian Tory rangers kept to themselves, no doubt excited that the coming days would yield plunder beyond their imagination. When the attack force started south, paddling down the Little Miami and then crossing the Ohio, it numbered well over 500 Indians and rangers. By the evening of August 15th, they were all positioned around Bryan's Station, staying out of sight. This was the same night that the messenger had arrived. What was surprising was that no steps seemed to have been taken to protect the settlement from surprise, and the large attacking force had not been spotted. Only the attack on Hoy's by about 60 Indians. That was it. Just enough to raise the alarm and create a call for volunteers from surrounding forts. The plan was working out well for Gertie. The entire force of 500-plus attackers took their places on or near the bank of the creek and as close to the fort as it could, concealed by the tall and abundant vegetation. One detachment was posted near the trees and the corn, where the trace crossed the creek. Today there's a bridge over that creek. It was at the southern end of this bridge that the men were hiding. The main body of attackers buried itself in the cane break and marsh grasses. So near the spring, said one survivor, as to render it useless to the fort. Gertie was evidently in doubt as to whether or not the volunteers had left the fort, and sent some scouts to reconnoiter before daylight. Their mission was to capture an early riser or cause enough excitement to get the garrison to expose its fighting strength. Fort Sentry James McBride spotted one of them and fired. His shot rang true, and one of Gertie's scouts fell dead. McBride would lose his life to another Indian in 1789 while he was surveying the licking but killing a few of them who attacked him before he was tomahawked. Immediately after McBride killed the scout, James Morgan hid his wife under a floorboard in the cabin just outside the fort, strapped their little boy to his back, and escaped from the cabin 
and to the fort, all at his wife's insistence. What the attackers did not know was that this incident in the pre-dawn alerted the settlers to the fact that a force was waiting outside and that the attack on Hoyes was a diversion, so they did not send reinforcements. The besiegers did not believe that their real strength had been discovered, thinking that since random scouting by the Indians was a common occurrence, the fort defenders would not be alerted to the fact that an entire attack force lay just outside. But the fort had been tipped off, although history isn't clear just how. Had James Morgan seen something, or had one of the Indian prisoners from Ruddle Station, who they had brought along with them, been able to tip off Morgan before he reached the fort? If so, that scream or warning would have cost them their life. Inside the fort, Captain Elijah Craig was busy preparing for their defense. He asked for volunteers to ride to Lexington for reinforcements, and Thomas Bell and Nicholas Tomlinson stepped forward. They picked the two fastest horses and made good their escape, not pursued because, most probably, the attackers did not want to break from hiding and reveal their numbers. They were still not sure if most of the men had left the fort with the relief force. The gates had hardly been closed on the messengers when it occurred to the people of the fort that their daily supply of water had not been brought up, and as it was mid-August, they all realized with foreboding that the fort would be in serious trouble without it, and that it must be obtained at once, and by the women, or not at all. All those knew, inside and outside, that gathering water was a job done by the women, and if they sent men out, it would be a sure sign that they knew that the attackers were out there. The men would be attacked and killed, and the attack would begin. With the women, just performing their everyday morning chores, there was a possibility that no alarm would be sounded. As one early historian puts it, never was a demand for heroic self-sacrifice suddenly made or more simply and sublimely answered. There was no time for tears or lamentations, only time enough to gather pails, piggins, which were wooden buckets with one upright stave for a handle, noggins, which had two upright staves for handles, and gourds needed to fill the buckets. Then there were hasty embraces, which many no doubt feared would be their last, and as the sun cleared the horizon on that morning of August 16, 1782, the brave women of Bryan Station left its protecting walls and with looks of pretended cheerfulness, but with wildly fluttering hearts, went down the hillside, beyond the reach of the garrison's guns, and gathered at the never-to-be-forgotten spring, in point-blank range of hundreds of enemy rifles, and under the very eyes of a swarm of savages who crouched like panthers in close and deadly ambush about them. The coolness and audacity of the women's movement so completely convinced the Indians that their presence was unsuspected that they allowed no sight or sound to betray them, as one after another the women dipped their dripping gourds into the water, filled the pails, carried them up the footpath, and re-entered the fort. It was a splendid deed of heroism. Think of the lofty character of the women who could endure that sudden departure from the nearest and dearest ahead on earth of the grandeur of their self-sacrifice as they passed down the hillside and out of sight of those protecting walls to which they might never return, of the agony of that long and sickening suspense as they waited their turn to the spring, making small talk, and of the shining courage that would have done honor to any warrior of any land that they exhibited, as coming and going with pretended unconcern they grazed the very precincts of captivity, of torture, and of death. Ask yourself, could you have held it together? Hope and joy and pride filled the fort as the stout-hearted women returned in safety with the water for which they had risked their lives at all that made life valuable. But the imminence of danger allowed no time for celebration, 
and the women busied themselves at once to the molding of bullets, and to be ready to load the extra rifles that would be rapidly passed to them during the fight, which they knew was to come. Keep in mind that these long rifles were single shot. Each shot had to count. About two hours after the spring incident, according to both British and American accounts, the attack upon the station commenced. When the early morning advanced and there was no departure of relief forces from the station, Gertie determined to wait no longer and commenced operations with an attempt to draw the garrison away from the northwestern side of the fort so as to surprise it with an attack of its main force, which was so admirably situated as to quickly overwhelm it. To accomplish this, a squad from the creek site, posing as the only Indians present, showed themselves as starting the attack. Gertie was expecting the garrison to flow as the others had, massing his men on the side from which they now saw an attack forming, but the wily defenders had judged that the group of Indians on the south end were too small a force, and they were not fooled. But they wanted to look as though they were fooled, and immediately the south gate of the fort opened facing the creek, and 13 men of the garrison ran out, kneeling and firing at intervals, making it look like they'd taken the bait. They ran just far enough to receive return fire from the Indians, then turned back and ran to the fort. By then the warriors near the spring had heard the firing coming from the north end and ran to accompany Simon Gertie, all half-naked, whooping war cries and hideously painted, running toward the north end to join what they hoped would be the blood feast. Some of them carried incendiary torches, a new and unexpected danger for the settlers, and one more dreaded than all the rifles and tomahawks of the Indians, for their cabins were as dry as tinder from the August heat. The distance to the fort was short, and the Indians, sure of success, were clearing it with shouts of exultation when suddenly, and as unexpected as lightning from a clear sky, one volley of rifle shots after another crashed through the portals of the station into the charging mass. The Indians were dumbfounded and panic-stricken. The triumphant war hoops ended in cries of pain, consternation, and fear. Confusion reigned. Some wild shots were indeed directed toward the fort, and a few daring warriors even reached the stockade and fired some cavalry with their torches. All were caught in the swift stampede of hundreds of warriors as they dashed left and right to avoid another killing volley from the garrison, tripping over their dead and wounded as they did so. Before the echoes of flintlocks had died away in the Elkhorn River Valley, none but the slain could be seen along the grassy slopes. But there were no sounds of rejoicing as the savages disappeared, for the fired cabins were burning rapidly and fiercely, and for a few awful moments the station and its inhabitants seemed doomed to destruction. But deliverance came suddenly as if by a miracle as a stiff wind appeared from the east and blew the flames and sparks directly away from the station, and though many of the cabins were quickly reduced to ashes, the station was saved. The siege went on, however, as Gertie regathered his Indians, but the pioneers were greatly encouraged, not only because they had repulsed the first attack, but because no cannon had been used, and that gave them hope that reinforcements would arrive before they were burned down or overwhelmed. At least now there was a chance. There were forty riflemen at Bryan Station, and they were facing a force of four to five hundred Indians and Rangers. Join us next week Sunday night for part two of the story of Bryan Station here at 1001 Heroes Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host, John Hagedorn. If you're enjoying the story, please do send us a review and please share our show with others. Thanks for listening. Stay safe, everyone, and we'll be back soon with part two. Simon Gertie's Revenge.
your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records.